Before we begin, I'd like to just take a quick moment to let you guys know how much I appreciate the great team here at McCurry's Home Furnishings. They've partnered with me to make this show and podcast happen. McCurry's is unlike any furniture store in Sacramento. Not only do they carry the best furniture in town, they're also family-owned and operated for three generations. Did you know that McCurry's also offers complimentary design services? That's right. The same services, which could cost you hundreds an hour, are offered all complimentary with purchase. I love my furniture from McCurry's, and I know you will too. Now, on to the show. To the Jerry Reynolds Show and... uh, Yes, I am Jerry Reynolds, and this is uh, another podcast from the beautiful studios at McCrary's Home Furnishings, and have a special guest here that uh, many of you know, uh, Howard Bird, and we're going to talk about uh, some of his background, which uh, go a lot of different directions. And uh, <laughs> Howard, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you, sir. It's always a pleasure to be in your company. As it should be, yes. It is. Uh, but... Uh, First of all, I mean, I, I want to get into your into your background, uh, your basketball background. I know you actually have quite a quite a history as a basketball player. First, where did you go to high school? And uh... I went to high school in the San Fernando Valley, beautiful smoggy San Fernando Valley, and I went to Granada Hills High School. And a quick story about Granada Hills High School was um, when I was a freshman, I was trying out for the basketball team, and they said, hey, you got to run out and see this guy play football. He could throw a ball 90 yards. And I'm like, yeah, right. So I walk out there, and it was number seven, John Elway. And he could throw And that. he could throw 90. <laughs> I, it was unbelievable. Wow. And he played basketball, too. And I was actually, uh, not to name drop, but we were uh, friends. Well, you know, it's amazing, too, with, with John, you know, between obviously such a great athlete, outstanding golfer. You see him on the Celebrity right. Tour. You know, really plays extremely well still uh, at his age. And uh, yeah, my and my favorite John Elway story is he was a two sport two sport player. He was a baseball and uh, football, and his dad was the coach at San Jose State at the time. And they and John could throw a fastball a hundred miles an hour, but he knew John was going to go on to be in the NFL. So he told the baseball coach, "You could only use him for two or three outs if you're in the city championship in the ninth inning as a reliever." thinking, ah, that's not really an issue. He'll never pitch. Well, fast forward, when John Elway was a senior, they were playing Crenshaw, ninth inning, up two to one, bases loaded, and Crenshaw had a young man named Daryl Strawberry, who was a power hitter for the Mets and Yankees for years. Sure. All of a sudden, Daryl Stroh, the coach, goes over, calls a timeout, signals the right arm. John Elway comes in, bases loaded, two outs in the ninth, and three fastballs strikes out um, uh, Daryl Strawberry. And was the only player in the history of Los Angeles to be the MVP in football and in baseball. Now, and he, he was, was a great basketball player, too. Yeah, he was drafted. Wasn't he drafted high yeah. in baseball? Yeah, he uh, was. Was it Yankees? or? I, I believe it was Yankees, but he used that as an excuse not to play with, I believe, the Colts at the, the time. Colts, or I think the, it was, yeah. And he ended up getting drafted by. So he was one of the first athletes that determined his own destiny. Yes. Kind of thought it was kind of a spoiled move, but you know. Well, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, I think uh, you know Eli Manning played it yes. years later, so it's not, you know. And I, I have to say it, you know, you wish athletes wouldn't do that, and yet I can see see some reasons for them too. Uh, yeah. And 
and often it works out for the teams themselves, even the ones that lose them. So you know, high school was an interesting time because you asked about my high school career. They had a rule in my school that um, if you're a freshman, you could not play varsity. Mm -hmm. And I, at that time, I was about six feet tall, and I, I thought I was a pretty good player. You know, I got made some travel teams, and my my dad set up a meeting with the coach. And he said, I think, you know, we might not. My dad did a John Elway, actually. Mm -hmm. and said, he might not go to school there if he doesn't have the opportunity to try out. If he doesn't make the team, no problem. But he should at least try out as a freshman. Mm -hmm. And the coach kind of laughed it off. And he goes, sure, he could play as a freshman. Well, I showed up as a freshman, and I was now six foot four. Mm -hmm. And long story short, it, I, I'm not really a bragger, but you asked about my career. Um, I got to be the starting forward on the varsity. As a freshman? As a freshman. Now, that's a wonderful experience, except I was 17 years old playing basketball with seniors mm -hmm. that grew up together, and now I took one of their best friends' starting positions. Well, I hope you weren't 17-year-old freshman. <laughs> so, no, I was how old? How old? I was probably, I was pretty young. I, I was, well, well, I was well 10th grade started our well, school, not ninth grade. Oh, okay. So I probably so was sophomore, about yeah. 17. So, yeah, yeah, sophomore was sophomore. a freshman back yeah, then. Yeah. And um, I got to tell you, I got a lot of cold shoulders from my mm -hmm. teammates. So uh, socially, it was extremely challenging, especially mm -hmm. when I had to call my mommy for a ride home after practice. But it was a great experience playing against. No, I went uh, through some of the same there. thing as a sophomore. As, you know, as a starter, and quite honestly, I think as the best player on the team. But I'd taken a senior's job, and then uh, two of right, the other seniors right. Uh, obviously, they'd been buddies and had grown up together, and so it was a little. Yeah, it was little, a little, little tough little, transition. A little, little tenuous, but uh, matter of fact, my my favorite story is um, I was at this party. I was lucky enough to be invited, and there were a lot of seniors there. And this, there was a an odd group of people at our high school. They wore black leather jackets, played no sports, and they were really into motorcycles and muscles and tattoos. And mm -hmm. nobody talked to them. Yeah, pretty. I'm pretty sure you you weren't into muscles. No, I didn't even get invited. And um, <laughs> I was at this party, and the guy whose spot I took who should have been playing the forward on the senior, on the team that I took as a freshman, his best friend was this big kind of asshole football player mm -hmm. named Don, and I won't name the last name. And he came up to me and started pushing me around, and he said he wanted to fight me. And I said, are you fighting me just on the reason that I outplayed your friend and now I'm, that's, what, that's why you want to beat me up? And he said, yeah, meet me out there. And you know how it is in high school. Everybody gathers outside yeah, and there's oh, yeah. a fight. and. I'm gonna, I was going to get my ass kicked because I was six foot four and I weighed 170 pounds, and this guy was about six foot four and weighed about 270 pounds. So I knew for pride I had to go out there and fight this guy. And thank God I was watching some you know Bruce Lee movies, and I think I knew self defense, but I was going to, might have died. Yeah. And yeah, that could have been it for you. It could have been it. Yeah. And then I walked out there, and he was a no show. And I said, What the hell is this? And someone took me aside and said, That guy, Tom McLean, who's the leader of that gang, he was at the party and he went up to that guy and he said, if he laid a hand on you, he would not be going to school the next day. Oh, so you had a friend you I, didn't know I you had, had. So it reminded me of that movie, The Bodyguard, mm -hmm. where, where the guy befriended. And I didn't even know, like you said, this guy was my friend. And ever since that day, him and I have been in contact and best of friends. And yeah. It was like well, a great story. You know, through high school, did you play any other sports besides basketball? I, I played tennis, uh -huh. um, which was a lot easier. But back, at, you know, when I played, I, I really loved basketball. I loved to study the game. I loved to break down tapes. I loved to, I had this crazy coach when I was a 10th 
10 years old to 14 years old, he took me on trips where we scouted other teams. Jeez. And it was, a, it was a rec league called the Northridge Knights. And we didn't lose a game for five years. Wow. And this coach was serious. And he saw me playing outside one day and asked if I could be on the team. And he taught me the game of basketball, even though my dad was uh, helping me individually. He picked me up. But my favorite part of, uh, with him is he'd take me to uh, get a jumbo jack after every practice. The coach. And that, yeah. I love, that was my contract. Well, that's, well, that's pretty good. Yeah. But I mean, now, do you, have you stayed in touch with him over the years? Matter of fact, it's funny. I, about 10 years ago, I asked my mom who lived at Sun City. I said, I want to help find him to kind of thank him for all the mentoring mm -hmm. he did for me. And he moved in to her neighborhood because she yes. was in charge of the neighborhood patrol. Uh -huh. and, th and I haven't talked to him in you know, 25, 30 years from Los Angeles. So, yes, we went out to lunch and I thanked him. And he said mm -hmm. he was been following me in my movie career. And it was just, a, it was just, a really nice way. I, I really believe in if someone made a difference in your life of, of letting them know they did. Well, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think, well, everybody probably grows up and there's that special someone, you know, teacher, yeah. coach, uh, besides parents, you know, that, that has a, a real impact in their life. And Jerry, and, this brings up a point I, I was thinking about. Maybe it's time to adopt me. Your yeah, grandson. I really I, appreciate that. I, uh, You've been a big influence to me yeah, at Starbucks. I, I would, that's been really a goal of mine to adopt you. I'm ready because uh, <laughs> you know I've got a little room set aside that, uh, that we can in the nail, garage that <laughs> <laughs> we can nail shut. <laughs> so yeah, I think Mrs. Reynolds, she'd love to have you around uh, on a daily basis. Oh, we yeah. can watch the games together. We'll break yeah. them down. Well, I was going to say I've always said you know with when it comes to kids, I I can barely tolerate my own. <laughs> Uh, much less somebody else's. But, I agree. Uh, so, you know, there's that challenge. But then, now, after high school, uh, where did you go for your athletic pursuits? Um, afterwards, I, I made an odd choice. Uh, I had an offer to go to UC Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. um, but this school came calling. Uh, it, it's now Texas A&M. It mm -hmm. was at the time West Texas State University. Mm -hmm. But what intrigued me, they were in Division One at the time. And they were in a league with Wichita State, who had Cliff Livingston and Antoine Carr and Dryling and um, Wichita State was number one in the country sure. in the Missouri yeah. Valley oh, I Conference. That team, sure. And I, and of course, the next year they were on probation because they were all sure. driving Camaros. Mm -hmm. But I, I wanted to, I wanted to kind of do Mo something Cheeks different. Mo went to West Texas. Correct. That is correct. Yeah, one of the all-time great and, and a great guy too. Mm -hmm. um, I got a chance to meet him. But I thought it would be a unique opportunity. Um, you know, it was a little shocking when I got off the plane and everybody's wearing Wranglers and big belts and cowboy boots and hats. And it was from a California kid to that. It was it was a Interesting transition. Yeah, kind of a little, yeah, I'm sure a little very, traumatizing. For very a while. traumatizing. <laughs> uh, I think I was so homesick. I would call my parents like, "Come on, get me home." And God bless my parents. They're like, "Nope, it's free education. You need to stay as long as humanly yeah, possible." Yeah, I was gonna say, but I mean, as you said, that not going to Santa Barbara, and I mean, I'd have to think probably about ninety ninety percent of the people yeah. watching would say, "What?" They weren't very. They won like two games the year before. Yeah. Um, but it is Santa Barbara, you know. I know. Uh, yeah, well, you know, like you said, we all learn and live. Yeah, that no. was not one of my better choices. No. But I mean, I, I know West Texas. I mean, they've had really good basketball, yeah. and it was legitimately. Uh, uh, and, and I'll tell you, my career really went into perspective quickly. Um, the first game we played University of Houston, and at that time they had a little crew called Phi Slamma Jamma, mm -hmm. which consisted of Akeem Olajuwon, Clyde Drexler. Larry Michaud, yeah. uh, Benny, uh, who someone came off the bench too that was even in the NBA. Well, there was a 
Young was his. Uh, Michael Young. Michael and Young. And he had yeah. guns like that. Yeah, yeah. So we're down by like 30, and the coach looks over at me. He says, Howard, go in the game. And I'm like, okay, you know. And I didn't really know these players too much. So within two minutes of the game, I'm taking a charge. And all of a sudden, the next thing I know, these knees are on my chest and slam dunking on me. And the guy's running down, and, and I realized it was Akeem Olajuwon. But he, he was so bad that year because he just came from playing soccer and didn't understand the game that the next year he was amazing. But on that flight, i never forget, I cracked out. I was an economics major, and I cracked the book out, my roommate. And, and there is truth to be told. Most college basketball players are PE majors, mm -hmm. and they're not taking your hardcore studies. So I took out my economics book, and everybody on my team's going, what, what are you doing, man? What are you studying for? I'm like, uh, my career just ended. Some dude just dunked you, on me. You pretty well knew that uh, there was not going to be big money in the <laughs> no, NBA for no. Howard Bird. And, yeah, as you said, I mean, I thought it was interesting with uh, the Akeem Elijah one. As you said, I mean, a lot of people wouldn't believe this, but obviously, like many great players, he came to the game late. Yes. And, and definitely was a work in progress. Uh, wasn't heavily recruited. Just kind of begged right. uh, Guy Lewis at that time to take him on. And then... You know, each year just amazing. I asked him progress. I, you know. The next year, I said, "How did you improve so much?" And he, and he just looked at me and he said, "I worked out with Moses Malone every day when Moses Malone played for Houston." But, but you know, though, I mean, ninety-nine point nine percent of the people could work out with Moses Malone. It wouldn't make him a Kim Olajuwon. No, he they, had they he seven be, feet and can well, play soccer. No, he was a great. You know, it's a, a Tim Duncan was another case. Right. Of, like that really basically was a swimmer until his senior year and. You know, went to Wake Forest. They they'd recruited a couple other guys that everybody said would be the stars. And of course, you know, he just made such amazing quick progress. And I've always said that yeah. people forget that he's like the so-called 14-year-old that's going to be the second coming of LeBron. 99.9% .9 of the time, some guy that nobody knows uh, will pass him by. Well, I think it's interesting that you mentioned youth basketball and. You know, part of the reason I made the film Ball Buster was to kind of take my own uh, passive-aggressive shot at how ridiculous we are as parents, thinking our kids will get them a trainer and spend hundreds of dollars, and they're the next Steph uh, Curry because they go right. outside and practice these 35-footers, and they can make two of them with no one guarding them on my neighbor's hoop. So I'm gonna I'm gonna spend you know 500 a month and get them. The training, and I'm going to get those $250 shoes, and they're yeah, going to be in the NBA. Yeah, no, it's one of those things that, and then all the the traveling teams and all that. Right. And I, I still, I'm a believer that you know most young people should should play because they love it. Play all sports. I agree. There's plenty. There's no way you can identify greatness at 14 years old or 13 right. years old. I you, mean, you show me one kid that has played all year round. And ask him how much he loves basketball. Yeah, at some point the, the they burnout don't. happens. They and, burn out. And I mean, I always look at the the Michael Jordans, who was a late developer. Right. He was not heavily recruited until his senior year in high school. Larry Bird, same way. Uh, all kinds of guys were considered better than them. And then you see it in in today's game as well. I mean, obviously there's exceptions. LeBron James is the exception. Right. To every rule. But then again, you know, and that's the you know, the old high school, oh, you know, let the kids come out. High well, that's fine, but they're not they're not LeBron. Most of them really belong, will belong in the G League for a couple of years. To develop. Yeah, even Kobe, it was his third year, Kevin Garnett's third year, before they really 
had an impact. Right. Kobe was shooting air balls. Yeah, uh, no, he in was the not, playoffs. I mean, he's obviously one of the all-time greats, but right. still, it took him a while. LeBron James was a star day one. 18 right. years old, stepped on the court. And, what, what was interesting about uh, growing up was my mom was a teacher. And so she was very into studies and my dad was very into athletics. Mm -hmm. So it was very, it was clear that there was no, there was no misunderstanding that my mom basically said, if, if those grades aren't there, don't even think about playing. Mm -hmm. So I was not catered to. And my mom was great because if I thought I was hot shit because I was on the 10th grade varsity, my mom refused to um, have any kind of ego in any kind of braggadocious nature and always taught me to be extremely humble. And she would take me aside and just go. Yeah, wh wh when did that go away? I, just, <laughs> I, 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 I actually, that's one of my, I mean, th I need that to talk is to your mom. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting though. I think one of my favorite things, if I ever do get a compliment, not from Jerry, of course, but, no. but, but other people, if they do say it's one of my favorite things is, uh, which is kind of weird if you're bragging about being humble, I don't know how that works, but I, I do feel like, especially in the motion picture business, I meet so many people with immense egos that I always try and focus on the film and the progress of it. Um, and not so much. And my partner, Mark will always say, you know, I say, what's best for the movie, mm -hmm. not for me, not for you. What's best for the movie. So when you make it about other people, you usually have success when you're focused on yourself. Uh, usually success is hard to come by or it's very short term. Well, I do think two people, you know, around sometimes they can, they kind of build off that you know, their egos, it's a little harder for them to be as puffed up about themselves, you know, uh, when they realize that, well, this is not, this guy, you know, and, and everybody's got to kind of fit in and right. But, but you know, I mean, it's also true is that big egos exist, you know, and I just think people, uh, there's a blurred line sometimes with those people. And I feel like, um, they don't understand it's what they do. It's not who they are. Mm -hmm. And so when people misidentify their success as a person and how they treat other people, if they have business success, they don't really understand this. Just what you could lose that job tomorrow. Well, and then what the hell are you going to do? Well, so you like, better. Yeah, it's like athletes. I always said, uh, you know, in the NBA, you see guys come in and, you know, young guys and they're just great as, as, as young people and working hard and all that. And in some cases, about third, fourth year out, uh, they get the money uh, and they change. Yeah. And not for the better. And uh -huh. uh, now, not in all cases. I mean, some really get it, you know, and, and, and but it but it, it it's just what's well, human nature. I mean, some people can't handle success and well um, well it's interesting you said that because what i've learned is sometimes i ask myself like the demands i get from like some people's writers or some actresses writers and what i came to realize pretty quickly is that when you have 10 people you have lawyers and agents and managers and and just your your wardrobe person they all revolve you're paying them so you have five to ten people on your team kissing your butt and guess what? You are going to get full of yourself unless you mm -hmm. can do, unless you really know that's just part of the thing. Yeah. Why don't we get five or ten people kissing our butt? Um, first of all, I'm very tall, so it's yeah, hard to find yeah, those people. Yeah, yeah, a little harder to do. But yeah. uh, uh, I'm too cheap. I'm, 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 <laughs> I want to pay him. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of hoping my wife will kind of you know treat me a little better going forward here. You know, I mean a little bit of that. You know, I could always get you on one of those ninety day fiance shows. <laughs> oh, overseas, you can go oh, overseas. Too no, much work. You. Too much work. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. We won't do that. We don't. But now, I, I know you played for the uh, 
the team that plays the Harlem Globetrotters for a period, right? Yes. The, the Washington Generals. The Washington are, Generals, the, the world-famous Generals. Yeah. Um, I've always, now, well, I want to tell you, I've always said that was the that the coaching the Washington Generals has to be the best <laughs> job in, in America, now, not, not about the uh, yeah. money, because that's the only job that you could get fired if you win two in a row. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll take it one better. The only better job is playing on the Generals. Because you don't have to win, and they want you to shoot every time you get the ball. But more importantly, you don't play any defense. Well, and that was a, <laughs> that perfect. was a natural for That's you. Perfect. Wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So people ask me because the Harlem Globetrotters at that time were the Washington General. It was a, a team together. Sure. Uh, and so the Globetrotters own the um, Generals. Mm -hmm. So people always ask, like, how the hell did you get on the Generals if it's an East Coast thing? And so it's a really funny story. I could tell you a quick one-minute story. Um, I was working at the time for Chrysler Motors up in Ventura, California. And on Saturdays, I'd play basketball with all my friends, and they're all ex-college players. And I get one Saturday, and it's outdoors. It's nothing fancy. I get this little tug on my shirt, and it's this guy. He's like 75-year-old redhead. I'm thinking, this is creeping me out. Is that red clots? Red clots. And he, and he goes, son, um, I really like the way you play. Um, I'm running some plays in the gym with my team, and I would love you. We're a couple men short because we only travel with eight players. Um, a couple guys have the flu. Do you, would, do you mind filling in? Uh, and I'm like, well, what is it that you do, sir? And he goes, oh, I am the coach of the Washington Generals. And I said, like the Globetrotters? I go, sure. So I go in the Ventura College gym, and we run all these show. They call it show plays. So you uh -huh. basically pretend your thing, or they pull your pants down, or some crap like that. And he says to me, uh, after the practice, he goes, hey, you know, thanks a lot. Would you ever be interested uh, if my players don't get better? We're playing at the Forum this weekend. Would you want, would you want to play? Uh, I think, believe it was on a Sunday, and this was on a Saturday morning. And I go, yeah, but you know, maybe you can give me like 10 tickets, bro, something like that. And he goes, sure. So he calls me up that night and he goes, yeah, why don't you come down to the forum? I got 10 tickets for you. So I bring my parents down, my friends, and we're in the locker room. And, and I go, hey, Red, um, like, what do you want me to do? And as I look out, there's like 15,000 people out there. And I go, can you give me like some hints? What? He goes, oh, don't worry. You, you just get in, follow things. Well, I didn't even know, but they, I was starting. So he put me in the starting line. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay. So I go, what do you want me to do? He goes, just play shitty defense. I'm like, easy for me to do. And shoot when you get the ball. And if they pull your pants down, just make sure you're wearing underwear. I'm like, okay, okay. So I go out there and do the routines. And Well, that's a pretty, uh, pretty easy uh, sequence to follow. Yeah, it? I've never quite heard that from any coach. None yeah. that didn't get arrested. And I said, uh, okay, that, that sounds great. I can do that. Well, I played the game, had a marvelous time, met Twiggy and all the, all the Globetrotters. And he said, um, would you ever be interested in playing long-term? I'm like, uh, you know, I have a full-time job. I, I have a house. I, I don't think so. I was like 23 at the time, 24. And he goes, I go, but, you know, just call me just in case. So six months go by. I get a call at my office. I'm up there in uh, Ventura working for Chrysler. And he goes, uh, hey, we're filming a ABC Wide World of Sports special. Why don't you come down and that'll be your tryout? I said, like live on TV in front of the world, you want me to try out? And he goes, yeah, it'll be fun. And I'm like, all right, what the hell? So I go down there and I just played my game and I tried out and I, and I shot. But what was really interesting afterwards, I had to go up to suite and there was five executives because what I didn't realize is you're actually an ambassador 
when you're overseas to the world, you sure. can't be a jackass. Well, that, yeah. And right. so you're representing the United States. So they asked you actually a lot of situational things. It wasn't really about playing basketball. That was maybe 40% of it. But hey, how would you handle this, this? Can you do a press conference? Can you deal with that? And so it was a lot of situational things. Uh, and he goes, okay, you know, you did pretty good. And, and maybe we'll call you someday. I'm like, okay. So literally like three or four months get, go by and he calls me one day. And he goes, yeah, you made, you made the team. We have a couple openings. We want you to be on the team. Well, I, like I said, I owned a house and a job. And I said, look, give me 24 hours. Did, so, they, ever, did they ever mention salary? And, no, and I mean, I, I didn't even really get into that because I wanted to see if I wanted to do it first before I wasted his time. Mm-hmm. And something you have to understand about, my dad was an engineer for user aircraft company for 45 years. Same job, same pocket protector, sure. same three pairs of pants. So he, he wasn't probably no. seeing the real value of you being a Washington <laughs> general. Is exactly. that what you're saying? He yes. Put, he put it this way. When I, when I thought I was king shit and I returned home from college and I, and I was a senior and I graduated with a business degree and my dad says, what are you doing this summer? And I said, oh shit, I've worked my ass off the last four years. I figured I'd take it easy and just go to the beach. He goes, what? He goes, you have 48 hours to get a job and you're kicked out of the house. Uh, okay. So mm-hmm. I slept at my buddy's house until I got a job. But I went to my dad and my dad said the funniest thing to me that night. He said, one day you're going to be watching the Globetrotters on TV with your kid or kids and you're going to regret not going on that experience. Really? That's, uh-huh. And I said, holy shit. My, I knew my mom's like, go for it. You know, she was the adventurer. Mm-hmm. And I went home that night and I called Red Clots and I said, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. I went in to tell my boss. <laughs> my boss says to me, he was kind of a cusser. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you blank, blank, blank. I know you're going to the competition. I know you're going to Chevrolet. I trained you the last three years. How dare you? And I said, I'll tell you what. The LA Times is coming tomorrow and doing a story that I'm playing basketball over, overseas with the Globetrotters. If that's true, you keep my job for a year at full salary. I come back and I get the job. Okay? And he goes, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah. And the next day the Times came and I was on the front of the Times. So now, now like, so then you went immediately overseas, joined the team overseas. Yeah, South you know, America. Let me, but I guess get back to the salary, not to say any, yeah. you know, was it somewhat uh, comparable to what you were making? No, uh-huh. no. I, I, was, I was making probably, again, I was 23. I was making a ridiculous amount. I was probably making $85,000 a year at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was at my own house. And of course, my dad talked me into renting five of the rooms in my own house, which is never a good idea to no, live there and no, rent five rooms. But um, the salary back then was probably about three grand mm-hmm. a, month, a month, zero expenses, mm-hmm. all travel paid. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, I, I just said, for the experience oh, yeah, and, the, and the stories that mm-hmm. I got from that. And, and I kept a journal every day. And when, we, when I wrote the movie Ball Buster with Marcus Allen, I went back to that journal and I told him some of these stories and we'll talk about it when he's on here because no one will believe this stuff happened, but mm-hmm. I had it in my journal. So it was so easy to write that movie. So have you ever thought about writing a book or? Well, I wrote a movie uh-huh. called Ball Buster when I know, it comes but, out. But I mean, the, the uh, <laughs> Howard Bird experience with the Washington Generals. I, I don't think people really care that much about my general experience at this point. Uh-huh. But but maybe later, uh, um, more about my journey in the film business. Well, I mean, I do think though. I mean, I I, I agree it probably. But I mean, I think from the standpoint of uh, a lot of us, you know, have no have no background into what what it is to be a worst. We all know the worst in generals as right. the, as the foils. 
for the Globetrotters, but really, you know, what's a Washington General do on well, a daily basis, well, you know, and all that, that sort of that's thing? That's a good question. What, what, what I personally did is I looked at it as my chance to see the world mm -hmm. uh, without a military um, position. Sure. So I took advantage. So you'd fly, you'd play every night, but the games weren't until 8 o'clock at night. So I had two travel partners that were both immense human beings. They were both about six foot 10 and loved to travel. Mm -hmm. So I made, so I got free tickets during the day and I went out and I really tried to get the culture. And then more importantly, we tried to invite people that we met to go to the game. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards they would take us out and no. really see the culture. So you're, you're kind of con. I was maxing free, free meals and <laughs> yeah. drinks is what you're telling Exactly. Me. But I wanted to see how people live, just not the tourist stuff that I saw sure. during the day. Yeah. So I really use it as a way to really understand these wonderful, Wonderful places and wasn't sure if I was ever going to get the chance to travel mm -hmm. there again. And that's what I loved about the experience was the camaraderie with, with the fellas, the, the, the traveling, the, the playing I could care less about. Although w one day was kind of funny. I walk out there and there's uh, 50 kids that want my shoe. We're playing at this arena in Mexico City, literally made out of stone. Mm -hmm. The baskets, they had leather, um, just like little leather um, nets and the, the, the court was stone in this beautiful arena built out of just no concrete, stone by stone. Wow. And all the poor kids were up above that couldn't afford. And afterwards, I said to my buddies, I said, God, you know, I think really, I think I'm kind of might be a celebrity out here. Everybody wants my shoes. Well, yeah, they wanted to sell. But... <laughs> no, they wanted for their own, man. They didn't have shoes. <laughs> they didn't have shoes. So. Like, uh, thanks, yeah, they Twiggy. Were, they like, yeah, yeah, but... <laughs> like, they want my shoes. And they're like, no, Who's they, that they guy? He's got shoes. shoes. That's it. <laughs> well, that was kind of a, an eye-opener for you. I mean, yeah. at least. That was a little bit of a letdown. But so, thank God I was humble. So, uh, like, we, during your actual playing of the game, I mean, was it was it tough sometime just to, to to be the total foils? I mean, you realized you had to, and I mean, you couldn't steal yeah. a ball or well, block a shot or. It, I hate to refer to uh, ball buster, but there's a scene to answer that exact question, and the question is, how do you go from playing Division One basketball, which is a business? Sure, it's it's eight hours a day playing, studying, filming. Off season, you know, even during the season when you go on a road trip and you play a Tuesday, Thursday, our coach was brilliant. And he said, why don't you take Monday, Wednesday and Friday off and just maybe miss the whole week of school. And so not a lot of priority on the scholastics. So when we were um, traveling around, it became pretty evident of a lot of people could not make the transition from being a college basketball player to letting someone dunk on you or getting mm -hmm. your pants pulled down. Yeah. So. People, a couple of times, they had a rule. If you ever did a flagrant foul and injured somebody, you will get kicked off the tour. Mm -hmm. And a couple of times we had people kicked off the tour because they got so frustrated getting dunked on because the reason why the, the Globetrotters always win, because in your contract, if they yell a show play, you have to let them score. So you could be shooting 80% that night and you could be up by 15 points and these assholes wouldn't let, let you win. They'd call 10 show plays in a way and rip, you know, get 20 well, points sure. in a row yeah. and you'd lose. Yeah. Well, one night we had a guy that couldn't take it anymore and Twiggy went up for a dunk to win the game and he just low bridged him and the guy got kicked off the tour the next day. Yeah. I, I looked at it as, and we had a lot of, that was a tough transition for a lot of people on our team. I was a little older where I had been in the workforce for three or four, for two or three years, yeah. where a lot of players coming out of coming college, out of college they couldn't deal with it. Scene, yeah, I, mean, I kept telling them, look at his perspective. They're paying you to travel around the world. 
it's all entertainment for kids. People are laughing their yeah, ass the kids, off. I mean, they're, the people are coming to the game to right. see the Globetrotters. Right, not I to mean, see you make a 20-footer. Yeah, so so I mean, just, it's, it's an uh, acting gig. Yeah, so, you know, yeah, you, you may be competitive, but uh, you better leave out of the it, door. Uh, Jerry, it, it is funny. I, I could be at a, a meeting with five celebrities 100 times bigger than me. But if, if so, And I never really tell people I play with the Globetrotters, but if it comes out, oh, my God, it's all they want to talk about. Is, well, yeah, I think it's an it's a, it's amazing backstory, you know, for anybody. I mean, because I think everybody grew up seeing the Globetrotters. Right. And, and the Worston Generals. And, right. And I remember, you know, Red Klotz even played. He, couldn't he had play. a two-handed set shot. Oh, he couldn't play a lick, but he was out there playing. He was funny. So, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful and, and, I mean, I, I think the enjoyment of the Globetrotters when you're a kid, I mean, uh, you sure. know, you... You think that they are, you know, one of the best teams in the world. You, you know, but that time, I mean, they were at one they, point. They did have. They were great at one players. point back, you know, before the NBA um, really got established and everything. Red Klotz, he he had he was he was a little old, so he wasn't really uh, diagramming plays or anything. But he had one rule, and the rule is, he did not want you. We had a couple guys on our team that th- thought, hey, I'm traveling the world. I'm, I'm kind of like, we had this one guy I thought, I swear it was Billy D. Williams. He mm-hmm. had the sweet hair, the mustache. And so he would, every game, he would take business cards from the hotel. And back then he would call them bombs, which probably you can't say anymore. And he would just simply write, call me later. I'd like to see you. And what he would do is he would pass them out before the game. They're the best looking girls in there. Mm-hmm. Whoever we were. So Red Klotz passed a rule and he said, no more of these bombs. If you catch, if I catch you in these things, you'll be off the team. I'm so tired of this crap because we were getting a lot of c- complaints that they were doing that before the game. It was like too obvious. So this guy wasn't the brightest guy in the thing, but he, he, was, uh, he was a good looking guy. So he decides after Red laid down that rule, I saw him in the lobby grabbing the cards. I'm like, dude, you can't do this. You're going to, he goes, no, I got a plan. I got a plan. I said, okay. So I look in the game. <laughs> this guy's got a stack of cards in his goddamn sock, right? So he literally, that was his play, is after the game was over, he was going to pass them out. So he's playing with a stack of cards saying, call me later. So there's a routine at the free throw line, and we were at the Tokyo Dome in Japan. And, um, and everybody that night before got sick from the, some of the sushi they ate. And the guy that usually does the routine where they pull down the pants uh, wasn't doing it. So he says to Billy D Jr. Hey, why don't you do the gig tonight? You're at the free throw line. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, this is, I just hope they don't do anything with the socks. I know it's the pants. So sure enough, Twiggy, big seven foot one guy comes up to him and just yanks his pants down. But in the process caught his sock (laughs) and there was 55 call me's all over the court. So that was kind of the end of the, that was uh, his last game. End of the old career, huh? But it was so damn funny. And so you had stories like that every single night, you know, especially when you had the language barriers and you didn't even know what was going on. I have fifteen of those stories. Now, how many how many years did you do that? One I year? did it for uh, close to a year. Close to a full year. Honestly, I, I it was kind of the novelty was wearing off. Sure. Um, because I realized overseas what they did is they sold the tour to a promoter and you were at their mercy. So all of a sudden these guys would do five days a week and on the weekends they'd run you double. Mm-hmm. They'd do a matinee and a night game and there was no you know month after month of traveling. And we'd go to a new location every two or three days. Uh-huh. So it was extremely exhausting with no breaks in uh-huh. between. Um, I just said, okay, I, it's in my memory bank. I'm well, yeah, not you, doing I this. mean, you got out of what you wanted. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's the thing. I mean, obviously, you, you 
you knew that wasn't going to yeah. be your He wasn't happy to when be I a left. Hall of Fame globetrotter. No, no, uh, it wasn't. Globetrotter foil. To but, but life is based on experiences. And I just thought, you know, yeah. my dad was right. That was a wonderful experience. And sure enough, about eight or nine years ago, my daughter and I were watching the Globetrotters. And I was just thinking of my dad saying that to him. Uh-huh. Like, he was right. I'm glad. Yeah, no, I, did I, that. I was going to say, I'm sure that that's meant more to you than one more year working oh, yeah. for Chrysler. Yeah. Not, not that that wasn't a good I did have a free car. Good, good gig as well. So, yeah. So now, after the, uh, after the Globetrotter experience, and, and I guess, too, the, the thing I would come up with is obviously, I remember, I can't remember when I first met you, but, but, uh, you got me involved with some, I think, taxi, right? Uh, yellow cab commercials. Right. Uh, so my wife had a marketing company, and she said, uh, "We need a great spokesperson in the community." And I, I knew you. I don't think I did. Did I know you a little bit? You know, I, I can't remember. I don't. I, was, I, I don't think I did. Th- I, I think that was kind of the the first time. That was uh, our first moment together. I believe so. Yeah. yeah it was our anniversary is coming up. You know, kind of tears <laughs> are starting to well up in my eyes. <laughs> Makeup. Um, yeah, so my wife had, you know, my wife's a very smart lady. She uh, has an advertising degree and she started her own company and they were looking for a spokesperson. Yeah, you overkicked your coverage a good deal there. <laughs> I said, I'm going to wreck, I'm going to go on the line. There's only two celebrities in town, Jerry and Marcus Allen, and Mark won't talk to me. So I'll yeah, he's a, Jerry. He was a little too big time. He was a little too time. big little right there. A little too big time. I had to earn his respect. Yeah, yeah. So he, yeah. we weren't quite, he did you have know, like yeah, three shows. Yeah, you don't shows. go right to him. No, no. no. I go, let me start with you. Baby steps. to his people first. Yeah. Then you had to get to his people. Once I got through your people, you know, yeah. I know you're repped by, uh, by CAA. So I had to go down to Beverly Hills yeah, and negotiate yeah. a deal. Yeah, my people is me. You know who that is. I <laughs> so I said, <laughs> yes. Lay's potato chips are included. Jerry's like, I'm in. I'm in. And then, I'm in. And then Jerry and I, you know, Jerry, uh, I love spending time with Jerry because, you know, I love basketball and I just think he's a great guy. So him and I have been friends for the last 10 years and we got to coffee once every quarter. And, you know, it's kind of a, a fun relationship. Get, uh, yeah, really get to, Howard asked me tough questions like I'm going to really provide him inside information, which I don't have anyway anymore. <laughs> At one time I did, but I still didn't give it to him. <laughs> he didn't. Very stubborn. Like, so did, did, I'm like, did, oh, I won't even say anything. You can't say that. But, but I mean, that was a, so, so you, so basically you got into that part of the business uh, through your wife. I was just helping her. Just helping At, her. The, at that point in time, um, after college and I, I got into the workforce, um, I really loved media. And I worked at, with Mark at Channel 31. And then I, someone made me a unique position at Comcast to be a West Coast sales trainer. So I got to teach people, which I always like teaching and coaching. Mm-hmm. I got the opportunity to teach new salespeople how to sell you know, the cable advertising on ESPN. I always remember like. Elliot Trashinsky, the general manager Elliot. of Channel 3, is a good friend. And, yeah. and he had uh, told some uh, Howard Bird stories, but he... <laughs> But all that being said, he said, uh, you know, Howard is really good at what he does. He's really good. I, that's at what a good he compliment does. from Elliot. Well, Elliot's he's one of my he, mentors. Well, he's big time. Yes. He really is. I, I love Elliot. And I do too. I mean, just a, a special guy. But I was going to say that I told Elliot that I said, so so you actually had Howard Bird and Grant Napier both <laughs> under, your, under your wing. I said, you've done remarkable things. Remarkable things. Grant, Grant, just the digress to Grant. Um, I, Grant amazed me on one capacity that he was on the 10 o'clock news. His sports thing, I believe it was an hour news at probably about 1042 was his sports. And he, that guy would come in at 1030, probably 1040. 
where you have these reporters all day long working on their stories. Grant would come in there, shorts, uh, shirt, tie, and he would nail it every single. I've never seen anything like that. And that really impressed me about Grant. And Grant, the thing I love about Grant, uh, unfortunately, in today's society, you have to have more of a filter. But man, Grant was just real. You no. know, I could go up to Grant and just just, just no, be I, real with the guy. I've always said, I mean, it. I mean, working with him for 20-some years and different things, I mean, he's just truly gifted. I mean, like yes. you say, you know, I mean, it, you know, it's real knowledge. It's not something he, he has to spend a lot of time preparing. He knows. Yeah. You know, he, he, you know, and probably basketball isn't even his best sport. I mean, he knows hockey. He knows football, football inside yeah. out. I mean, there's, I don't think I've ever been around a guy who had as much knowledge in sports. When we first started working, I remember telling people, I said, well, you know, I, I have no doubt in my mind that, that I have a lot better background than Grant in basketball, and I feel like I, you know, but by the end, it's like, you know, I'm not too sure here. I, I kind of feel like he, he really gets it better than I do. He's watched a lot of sports. Uh, yeah, you know, and I mean, he's just, he just, like you say, the, you know, you turn the camera on and he's ready. It's amazing. Only guy I've ever seen, we could, do a, we could be doing a basketball game and he could be watching Giants football game and not miss a beat. Yes. And I mean, I, uh, and texting, you know, yeah. and it's like me, I uh, mentally challenge you know i mean i'm barely i've got to focus i got yeah one thing at a time you know i can follow the game and and, and try to do my part no i i, I think multitasking is one of the most overrated things in the world yeah most people can't do it i mean i think they're well then they do it they do it not as good as if they just focus on what yeah, they were doing i agree and, and i think that's that's what always amazed me him I, I think he was didn't miss a beat, and I've never right. seen that. I've seen most people think they can multitask right. and aren't very good at anything. Which is amazing how many more uh, back-end um, accidents they've been, you know, rear bumpers, people, since they could miraculously do so many things, including yeah, texting text and watching and drive and Yeah, Don't text and drive. I got hit in the rear end about a year ago. Me too. Somebody. So quit it. Stop it. Stop That's it. PSA. Yeah. That's for and, free. And... Probably the other advice I'd give, I walk all the time. And if you're a walker, assume that the car is not, does not see you. Does not see you. Yes. You know, and if you're going to cross, cross a little faster. You know, By the way, I, I love when you're crossing before the car and they're giving you a look like you're the asshole. Yeah, yeah, or, or just making it slower. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, the car is not supposed to hit you, but don't mean it won't. Right. And I've always said that. I, mean, I, I basically, the main my rule I have on my walks, I, I go a lot of different places, but I like wide sidewalks, not close to the road. I just don't want to take any chances. If somebody's going to run over me, they've got to be serious about it. That's committed. Matter they, of fact. They, yeah, it can't I, be just an accident. they got to say, I had I'm a, getting um, that old guy. I take it one step further. I don't even go into the bike lanes in Roseville. I go onto the sidewalk. Yes. So a cop pulled me over, policeman, and uh, who I have ultimate respect for. Yes, you and, I, and he said to me, uh, what are you doing? And I said, my friend, I live one minute from Sun City and a high school. Mm -hmm. I'm not going in that bike lane. <laughs> I'm on the sidewalks as safe as I could be. Yeah. And he goes, okay, that's a good yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's... Uh... I mean, why be closer to something 4,000 pounds exactly. going, going 50 miles an hour? They, they don't care the, about you. If the summer you just lose a little balance, you know, right. you could be, it could be over. You could be, you know, be a memory. Right. A wonderful memory, but nonetheless, but a memory. Not worth it. Now, that's our public uh, transportation announcements yeah. for today. So now, 
Uh, just uh, some of the questions that you know always happen with people. That, you know, some of your uh, your favorite movie stars uh, through the years as a adult growing up, if you still have grown up. I mean, no, but people that are older than me, no. I my favorite star that I've personally have worked with, or just it, yeah, yeah work, I'd work say with and and uh, I'd say unequivocally, my favorite star is John Travolta. Mm -hmm. Because we did a movie together. That was a terrific movie, and, by and the way. Thank I you. That thank was you. really good. We, we actually launched a couple of big careers there. Dan Stevens, who went on to play Beauty and the Beast. Mm -hmm. Chris, uh, Chris, I believe his name is... Now Michael uh, Pitt was in that, too, right? Yeah, he's my least favorite actor I say, I've he, ever worked with. He, he's uh, he's kind of... Well, let me just tell you about Michael Pitt. And I'm not... This is fact, so I'm not defaming him. But in my opinion, what I have heard is that Marty Scorsese was so tired of him that he fired him and killed him off on Boardwalk Empire. Well, that, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. So he came to work for us rec because he was a package deal from his agent along with uh, Mark. What was Chris's last name? The actor? Brad? No. Fine. No. In, in criminal activities, he didn't see it. Um, but anyways, Travolta, the first night, him and I had dinner together. And, you know, he has kind of the Scientology background. Yeah. And I'm right. like you. I, I already know everything about myself, so I kind of want to learn about other people. So I, I, I don't know where this is going to go, but he, he's not a drinker. We we're just having a wonderful time talking basic things. And then I got into Scientology with him. And I was just curious if he was going to open up about that. And he was really, and it wasn't to recruit me. I had bona fide questions I needed to dig down to. Uh -huh. And he was so open about it. He told me about the, the process, how they had to audit his wife, Kelly Preston, he told me about the good things, the bad things. And two hours later, it was like he put down the movie star, John Travolta, and we didn't talk about Grease or Pulp Fiction. And we just really got into, you know, being father. And I know he lost his son and mm -hmm. I had lost my mom at that time. And we just had a, a real honest conversation um, that I appreciated and it wasn't about PR. And so it was just a true joy. And my other favorite actor is <laughs> he's the actor everybody knows, but can't you know you have to point him out so it was richard jenkins richard jenkins yeah on the seattle mile was it the yeah, name of the movie? four minute mile had four richard mile. jenkins yeah. and and the funniest thing about richard jenkins so he was a stepdad and uh stepbrothers he was in um the movie uh what what else is he in mark he was in killing him softly he's been probably oh, 200 movies zillion things fantastic yeah. actor shape of water so the funniest thing is i get a the first movie i ever did I get a call from Richard Jenkins, first thing in the morning. First day of shooting, I'm already nervous. I, I had no formal education up to this point on making movies yet. I was in charge of this $5 million movie. And he says, hey, Howard, um, I'm having a problem. I do not want to have, because it was a union where we had to have him chauffeured by a driver. And he goes, I refuse to go to the set with this driver anymore. And I said, well... You know, I'm a little nervous. You know, he's like a legend to me. And I'm like, well, how come, uh, Mr. Jenkins? He goes, you can just call me Richard. And I said, okay. He goes, well, the driver for the last half hour, because it was a, he was staying at the W Hotel where I was staying at this little shithole outside in Renton. That seems to be Of course, fair. he had yeah, a suite yeah. there. And uh, he said, the guy has interviewed me for the half hour, and he's come to the conclusion that I am not worthy to be the coach in this movie. Really? I said, the union driver... It says interviewed for the last half hour, and he has told you that you shouldn't be playing this. 
He goes, yeah, of course I couldn't fire the guy because he's union. So he goes, Howard, do you think you could um, pick me up and give me a ride home tomorrow while you figure this out? And I go, okay. So again, no experience. First set right off the bat a problem. So Richard Jenkins, I give him a ride home. It was like an awkward first date. I didn't really know what to say to him. I was kind of in awe of him. And then he goes, hey, will you pick me up in the morning? And I'm like, sure. So I pick him up in the morning. And at that time, he was doing a movie, uh, Killing Him Softly with Brad Pitt and Jack Reacher uh, with Tom Cruise. And because he's, has, you know, he's probably in his 60s, he has this wonderful experience of movie acting. They would call him every day. So I'm in the car driving a half hour. Hey, Howard. Brad Pitt's calling him. Yes, Brad Pitt would call him. And, and I was, was totally like, trying to, to, to No, to I was doing better. I was like the shittiest <laughs> eavesdropper while trying to drive. I should have yeah, worn a neck brace it. after. Brad, and then hey, he, Brad, he gets off the phone, you know, and they're talking about killing him softly. And then Tom Cruise calls him. I'm like, holy shit. So I was so excited. I was so giddy about it. And so we're driving. So we're driving back and he go, and I go, he goes, you know, Howard, um, producers never really transport the actors. So I know you're kind of doing me a favor. And he goes, so I understand if you want to have someone else drive tomorrow. And I said, well, Richard, you know, I'm kind of new at this, right? And I said, how about if you put all your calls on speakerphone in the morning and then you could kind of educate me on producing movie from the actor's perspective, because mm -hmm. it's all about getting the talent. And yeah. I had no idea how to do that. And I said, and we'll drive to work every day and I'll pick you up since we're going to be there anyways. And he goes, deal. So the next day I came out, he had a big Starbucks coffee for me. And for 30 days, it was like driving Mr. Daisy. Wow. We just came up with this great relationship where he kind of mentored me through osmosis. And, and I got to, I, of course, I never got to talk to Brad, Brad, uh, Brad Pitt. Or, yeah. But my God, I learned so much more than any USC half a million dollar uh, film school student could ever do. And that, and that really gave them me the foundation of connecting uh, with actors where I just decided to call the agents and, and did all my own negotiating mm -hmm. and saying having lawyers do it. We had to reshoot one scene a month after the movie's made. And Richard, he was, I got to say, I love him and he's professional, but the star of the movie didn't like doing the reshoots and he was bitching the whole time, uh -huh. the, the kid in the movie. And Richard, it started to affect Richard. So I don't, I thought we had a pretty good relationship. So I took Richard aside and I said, I said, you, you're a pro, right? So why are you mailing it in? Mm -hmm. I said, this, you're better than this. And he just looks at me and goes, I taught you well. <laughs> I said, go back in there. And he did it right. And did it right. Yeah. And so it was a well, good. I, I really, that, that's another, that's a terrific movie. And Kim Basinger, one of, one of my, yeah. you know, favorites for years and years. You, you had her in, in a key role and I thought she was terrific. Uh, you know, obviously. We had, uh, the funniest thing about that, we had a huge star to play the kid runner. Mm -hmm. And it was my first movie. And I hired this guy. I paid him really good wages. He was just an X-Men. I legally can't even say his name. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to see what kind of shape he was because it was a running movie. Sure. You know, mixed, mixed with running against the, his time was running out because his brother was a big drug dealer and they had to kind of figure when both worlds collided. But it did have a big running component. So I said, I sent a trainer up to Canada to look at this kid. And my trainer called me and he said, um, I said, how's it going with him? And he goes, well, is the movie about a 50 pound overweight person that's a chain smoker? I said, it's a running movie. And he goes, uh, and he snaps a picture of him and sends it to me. And I was like, ah, shit. Not going to work. <laughs> so I had to fire him. But of course, in 
Hollywood because the agents made me pay him full boat. Or they, and I said, why would you make me pay you his salary when he was unprepared? And he goes, because I know by the time you litigate it, it's cheaper to pay him. Wow. And I said, fuck you. Well, that sounds, that sounds <laughs> Excuse my very, language. very similar to we're dealing with agents and yeah. professional sports. You know, I mean, you, you know, most of them just. Yeah. Anyway. That's like, let's get reality. So I replaced him and the kid in there, uh, he went on to be in Walking Dead and he had a TV series and he was just, a, it, was a, it was a great move. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, it's, you live and learn. You, you, you don't personalize it and realize. And ever since that, matter of fact, he had a chance to be in Mother's Day, that kid, mm -hmm. uh, with the Mother's Day I did with Jennifer Aniston and, and Julia Roberts. And I said, no, do not, I'm not getting that kid. And he missed out on probably a quarter million dollar payday and he hasn't done anything since. Is there any, I guess, are there agents you really prefer to work with, you know, that you've, you know, that you know that, uh, that you know, they're fair, more fair, more, Realistic or um, let me I'm gonna have you answer that <laughs> Yeah, actually yeah, there are really? I mean I always said the those last two words were the, the majority of the ones that have a lot of clients Are easier than you know the the agent that represents, you know, it's his uncle uncle of the player yeah. or or a first-time agents got one player or two, right. but I always say, you know, the guys that's got 30 or 40 and been in the business a long time, generally you, you, you can have a, you know, a decent, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, they, they, they get the deal. And so uh, it's, it's a lot the easier. agents. I, I, I do, I do like some of the agents like at UTA, at Gersh, uh, CAA, they play very hard ball because they're the top of the top. It's the lawyers that, that get on my nerves, quite frankly. And they seem to just muck things up. And a lot of times the, what I found is the actors don't even know what's going on in the negotiations of the nitty gritty because they have to basically prove that they're worth their 15%. Mm -hmm. So they'll be super aggressive and asking for unrealistic things. You just can't personalize a negotiation. Mm -hmm. you, you, the, the thing about being a producer is you have to wear your economic hat and your creative hat. Very few personalities I found in my life have those two components. Mm -hmm. Usually creative people are a little more out there and that's what makes them great. And usually the, the business people don't have an ounce of creativity. Right. And the ones that think they do are problems. You're right. So I try and, and hire people that, that do what they do and let them do. Mm -hmm. um, but I do hold them accountable. If, you, if I feel, uh, or Mark, my partner feels they're not performing, we're going to have an honest conversation and sometimes I feel it's my responsibility to coach them to get them to bet to be better but if they don't have the desire it's very it's a little frustrating yeah it's like when you have you ever had you know when you coach how do you deal with a player that has the talent but they don't have the ethic to get well, better well I mean yeah they, you know basically you it, it depends on the circumstance too I've always I mean when as a college coach it was easy because you're the boss right in the nba in most cases you're really not and the, the guy may be the real problem guy may not be that good and he may be the highest paid well that's, so that that's creates a, a whole set of problems i've always said you know too the uh, thing that always struck me with with uh, contractual things and i think it applies to about anything is is try not to sign a contract that certainly in in basketball that you can't trade in other words oh, yeah. you know in other words just say the agent thinks this guy's worth $15 million a year. Uh, but if you say in your mind is, well, I know he's a good player, but I know at $10 million a year, he could be traded. Right. 
Right. But at 15, you know, to trade him, we're going to have to give him something else in order to get the deal done. So, I mean, I, I think that's the part sometimes people don't think about. But at some point, uh, or in, in your case, I would think, okay, this is this is what he's worth or she's worth to us. Right. And, well, and, I'll take it a step further. Not only do I do that, but um, I do a full analysis of if we get this person, how many, if their salary is three times more than the, another person, will they bring in three times more? Right. And, and unfortunately, it's all about estimates and people are very greedy on estimates because they want to get the business. So they'll say, oh, that movie's going to do 10 million overseas when you know damn well it's going to do two. Yeah. So you have to base it on realistic expectations. Uh, more than estimates, but yeah, because you've got to make a profit, right? Well, it's it's all about when Mark and I make movies together. It's really about we want to give every opportunity we can to people to actually get their money back. Mm -hmm. That 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 is imperative, and that's why I stopped making thirty, forty million dollar movies mm -hmm. because those people don't get their money back. The people that get their money back on those movies are the people that put all the expenses ahead of the people that put in the $30, $40 million, in, yeah. the distributors, the sales agents, the movie theaters. It's the most cockeyed business I've ever seen where the people that actually put up their risk get paid last. Get paid less. So what one of our goals was, and when Mark comes on up here in a couple minutes, we'll talk about it, is how do you flip that upside down? How in the hell do you flip a system that's for 100 years of movie making where these poor investors are paid last, how do you flip it upside down where they're paid first? And the only way to do that, I figured logically, was have leverage. But how am I gonna get leverage if I don't have uh, Dustin Hoffman and Justin Timberlake as my clients? Because those people have leverage. Right. But how you have leverage is you say, hey, I've got five movies I'm ready to sell and they're all freaking good. Mm -hmm. If you want a shot at these movies, I, I need a different distribution deal. How, we got to make that happen. Can you, like with some, say, top of the Travoltas or Kim Basingers, and I mean some well-known people, say, look, uh, I we got this movie, and it, we're going to get it done in a short time right. so that it wouldn't affect, but we can only pay you this, even though that's less than maybe you'd get on another project, but you'll be available for well, another project. And, and I'm going to bring you on as a producer soon, but let's take it one step further. Let's get a John Travolta where his fee could be $6 million, but let's get him for four days instead of 30, but in the contract, you could use him on the movie poster. That's how me as an economics person think, mm -hmm. is how do we make it look big without having a huge price tag? Right. So like apparition. Pollock, we didn't, because it's a horror movie, we don't need to have stars in a horror movie. Right. But I knew, and Mark knew, if we get a couple, it's going to be easier to sell. Yeah, you get somebody that people, that average right. fan, oh, I know. Right. Who, yeah. However, if you want to make this movie for X amount, and you do the numbers, that's the only way people will hopefully return their money, you can't give Kevin Pollock a 20-day contract. But you could give him some prime spots where in three days it could look like he's in 25% of the movie and, and the big parts. Mm -hmm. And in, again, this is important, in the contract, let him be on the poster or featured in the, in the trailer because a lot of times these agents do not want their people unless they're fully paid because mm -hmm. they know damn well you're trying to market them. Uh -huh. So that's a whole other separate negotiation. So yeah, but in a way though, it's, it's, isn't that good for the, 
you know, for the Travolta or the Paul. Yes I and mean, no. Obviously, they're they're being you know, highlighted. Without yeah, but think think about they they rather be in a hundred million dollar movie, sure. on that poster than three quarter of a million dollar movie yeah. with their name on it because sure. they feel they feel and you got to agree to this before you do the movie. What happens if it's a piece of crap and you're on the movie poster? That hurts that that hurts yeah, your I career. Mean, yeah, it's good so it's always it, and honestly, that's where you know people. I don't have a lot of experience at that time eight years ago making movies, but I'll tell you what I do have sales training mm -hmm. and don't think for a minute when you're getting agents or you're getting money. And, and I teach sales a little differently. I teach from the perspective of, I asked one thing whenever I would interview salespeople, I would say, what percent of a sales call should you talk versus listen? And you know what, what do you think they would always tell me? Gosh, I, I wouldn't have any idea. Well, they, they would say what they think I wanted to hear. So they'd say, oh, 90% listening, 10% talking. And I said, okay, no problem. I, and this is so old school. I would take out a little pen and I'd say, hey, sell me the pen, will you? And they'd start. The pen is blue. It does this. It does that. It does this. And so after about a minute, I'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Didn't you just tell me 90% was listening? You just yeah. talked 100%. You just talked all, the whole time, yeah. And, he, and they look at me perplexed. And I said, let, let me sell you the pen. So I'd take the pen back and I said, is blue or black more important to you? Is, is a ballpoint? Do you want it erasable? And so they'd list things and I would simply get the things that they wanted and I'd match them with the pen. The pen. You mentioned blue. Here's blue. You mentioned ballpoint. Here's ballpoint. How many would you like? So by... Sales, a lot of times they think is an evil word, like, like it's the guy on Saturday TV pitching you the mop when it's all bullshit and smoke and mirrors. But if you really understand what somebody wants and that why would you not buy it if you just told them what you want? Well, yeah, if you, I mean, you're, first of all, the person wants a pen. He right. Need, he needs a pen. Right. And you so, want to match what he needs. Yeah. So same thing when I go to make a presentation. So for instance, I had a meeting once and I wanted to raise a couple million dollars. I knew this guy was very wealthy. And I said, what do you want to get out of producing a movie? And he goes, I've been trying to get my daughter in the movies for 15 years. I've spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars on it. And she can't get a speaking part. And I said, that's because SAG won't give you a card unless you have a speaking part. But you can't audition unless you've had other SAG experiences. He goes, yeah, that's exactly it. And I said, I will get your daughter a SAG because there's a rule. You could taft Hartley somebody where you could go on the set and say, Hey, Marilee, Lee, just, you look, you look kind of pretty. Why don't you say this for me? Oh my God, this is amazing. I want to put you in the movie. And there's a provision called taft Hartley where you could legally do that. I'll be. So, and he goes, well, how, how much would that cost? And I just looked at him and I don't know why I said this, but one of my theories is you don't ask, you don't get. And I said, Oh, it's a million dollars a line. And he just looks at me and he goes, I'll take two. Wow. And he gave me $2 million. And she had two lines with John Travolta in the movie. Well, and it helped I mean, her career. I mean, when you really think about it, though, I mean, he, it was obviously what he was looking for. Right. Uh, it was the deal he wanted. But if yeah. I would have went in there yeah. and I said, oh, my God, you get 15% and you're going to have your name on them. He didn't want any of that. He, yeah, he'd been offered that kind of thing before. Right. So sure many times. By taking the time and understanding first before mm -hmm. I seek to be understood, that was more, we made more of a connection. Mm -hmm. So same thing when I do the movies. You know, I try to understand what people need, what they want, what's the experience. 
and I see if there's a match and then I give them that. Mm -hmm. And if it's not a match, I don't give it to them. So selling is really, uh, it's an art form. And people, I think a lot of times are frankly, you know, they're mistrained mm -hmm. and they learn out of a book or Tom Hopkins or Anthony Robbins, you know, which is more like preachers mm -hmm. than actually yeah, good solid business. Yeah, like televangelists. They are, way, yeah. they are, they're selling books. They're not, mm -hmm. they're not selling you and your career succeeding. They're mm -hmm. selling some system gimmicky system. Yeah. So my sales training, I feel has helped uh, every point in my career. That's the foundation and, and, and having the guts to uh, try things that no one else thought you could do. Well, I think that's your background as a, as a general, as yeah. a Washington general. <laughs> it is. So to get more into the, the movie thing, though, I think we need to, uh, yes. this probably is a, a good place to uh, take a break and, and bring in probably the most talented part <laughs> of, the, of the dynamic, Chris the, dynamic the dynamic duo, uh, Mark S. Allen, and uh, we'll talk some movie business. Hey, guys, I really hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. My team and I are trying hard to bring you the best interviews with some really great folks here locally. I need to ask you a big favor. If you can just take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe, that will help us out a ton. If you go to thejerryrentalshow.com, you can fill in those five blank stars and leave a quick review. Thanks for listening, and 